Welcome to The Reserve, a news and thoughts podcast from the Centralverse. I'm your host, Caleb Nygaard, and today is episode number 42. David Wessel has been a senior fellow in economic studies at Brookings and director of the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy since 2015. And before that, he was chief economics editor at the Wall Street Journal, uh, where he spent more than 30 years covering the Fed, uh, among other things. Um, and his his book, uh, his book on the financial crisis in Fed We Trust uh, was assigned in in my uh, in my undergrad in one of my final undergrad classes as it was like a bonus it was like an extra credit kind of thing uh, and so it was one of the one of the one of the the good uh, undergrad exposures to the Fed mates for some good good conversations out there in Idaho where I was so uh, uh, with with no further ado David thank you so much for coming on the show sure happy to do it. And uh, as as often is the case, we have Stephen with us. Stephen, good to have you back. Hey guys. Okay. Now today is a is a big topic. It's a long time coming. As listeners of the podcast know, we've talked to uh, a lot of uh, of journalists that are on the beat right now, uh, that are covering the Fed, that are that are going to the meetings, that are asking the questions, that are that are breaking the the stories and 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 of the last year the scandals and the ups and downs of the covid pandemic and its response and then uh and then the the lingering effects uh, and now inflation so we've talked to a lot of them but there are certain things that are kind of hard to ask to certain journalists that are still on the beat and so i just couldn't be more excited and i've wanted to have uh david on for a long time so i kind of wanted to start though by by just taking just a small step back and asking you david, kind of to give us the story of how you landed on the fed beat uh, i know you were at a few papers before the journal and then I, i'm not sure if i remember if where you started at the journal and how that kind of process happened that's a good question so um I did major in economics in college, and I always had this sense that there was something to be done in explaining economics through newspapers. Um, I started a small newspaper in Connecticut, the Middletown Press, and found myself writing a lot about electric utilities. This is the early 70s or the mid-70s when oil prices were high and utilities were a political issue. And more importantly, the managing editor of this little newspaper lived next door to the local nuclear power plant. <laughs> uh, and so that led to a job at the big paper in Connecticut on the business page, which is never something I thought would be fun to cover. But sure. the editor told me, oh, you'll love it. Uh, it's a lot of fun and you can't believe the stupid things that businessmen do. Um, and so... Uh, <laughs> I went from the Hartford Current to spend a year at Columbia in a program for reporters interested in business and economics. And then I went to the Boston Globe and I got hired by the journal in Boston. Um, okay. and, and at the Globe, were you, do, were you also doing uh, business stuff? I was doing business stuff. Um, okay. A business at the Boston Globe was a pretty broad category. Sure, like sure. we did a big series uh, they got a lot of attention on the persistence of racism and employment in Boston. And I worked on the investigative team on some stuff about city employees who were supposedly disabled, but going to the gym every day and listing oh. weights and stuff. Oh, dear. Uh, um, at the In the Boston Bureau of the Journal, I wrote a couple of economic stories, and that led to a job in Washington. And once I came to Washington in 1987, the end of 87, to cover economic policy, that's when I started covering among other things, the Fed. Yeah. And the thing about, there are two or three things about covering the Fed. One is 
when you work for a newspaper whose middle name is Wall Street, <laughs> you never have to worry that the Fed is out of favor. You know, yeah. the Wall Street Journal has gone from over the years to being really interested in social issues. They did a lot of coverage of the civil rights movement um, to being, oh, we're only about business and the economy to we want to be a global newspaper. Oh, no, that doesn't work and so forth. Yeah. Um, but the one constant was everybody knew that both the editors and readers of the Wall Street Journal cared about the Fed. So yeah. it was a good place to be. And yeah. secondly, and this is relevant to this conversation, sure. um, the Federal Reserve in general is undercovered relative to its importance to the American people, the readers, the economy, the markets. And so uh, when I got interviewed for a job in the Washington Bureau, I told the Bureau Chief Al Hunt that I had no interest in ever going to a presidential nominating convention. Um, and after I left the room, I said to my colleague, I think that was a mistake. I mean, Al Hunt lives and breathes politics and I'm yeah. telling I'm not interested. Yeah. And the person said to me, no, it's the perfect thing. He knows the economy and the Fed is important and he needs somebody who's stupid enough to not want to cover politics and to do it, to cover his ass with his bosses. Amazing. Um, Amazing. But the second thing is about, well, so one thing is it was a secure job. Secondly, yeah. um, it's undercovered. And so I always wanted to cover things that I thought I could make a contribution uh, to public understanding and the quality of the journalism. Yeah. And that's why, I mean, being the 50th reporter at the, Democratic convention or the <laughs> 500th reporter, it seemed to yeah, me the marginal contribution was going to be limited. But the third thing is that, um, uh, you know, the people at the Fed speak in a kind of code and it's hard for ordinary people to understand. But once you learn the code, it's pretty simple. And so having that ability to um, get immersed in something and kind of understand what they're doing and why they're doing it or why they say they're doing it and uh, particularly in the Greenspan years, uh, to be able to translate sentences that uh, no seventh grade English teacher would have ever allowed get out of the classroom um, was kind of fun. And yeah. it was something that once you learned to do it, it was really easy. And but it took some it was a there were barriers to entry. Yeah. And a lot of people weren't willing to spend the time to do it. They looked at these Greenspan testimonies and said, OK, I'm going to cover yeah. baseball. I'm out of here. Yeah. When, so, uh, Caleb, if I can jump in just quickly, please. just because you, uh, it's interesting to, you know, you have obviously like a wide perspective on how the Fed beat has changed over time. And, and Caleb and David, maybe you'll remember exactly the context of this better. I, I think it was Neil Kashkari, this was pre COVID, who, who kind of spoke about how coverage of the Fed had actually increased markedly and, and, and you know, coverage of the economy was thinking less about Congress and basically putting more pressure on the Fed. Do you see that? I mean, do you, how has the Fed be, or, you know, you, you say it's still undercovered, I guess, uh, despite all their efforts. Ha has it changed? Have they made progress? Are people putting too much on the Fed these days? I know that's kind of a new topic, too, is thinking the Fed can solve everything. Um, I don't know I if think you have thoughts you, there. I, I think you have to distinguish between how the press covers the Fed and the Fed's role in the economy and its public uh, thing. So let me take those separately. Um, the coverage of the Fed has changed because central banking in general has changed. And 
uh, you know, there's the famous uh, Montague Norman thing, like never explain, never excuse or something. What's yeah. I don't have that right. Something like that. Right. Yeah. Never. Um, yeah. And uh, I used to joke that Alan Greenspan did one on the record interview early in his tenure as Fed chair and never did another one. Actually, he did two others that I know of. Yeah. Uh, one was a mistake uh, he did with the Washington Post and we bitched. So he did one with us, too. And that was it. <laughs> um, but remember, when I came to Washington to cover the Federal Reserve, the Fed didn't announce that it was right. making an interest rate change. Yeah. Um, uh, which I can describe later led to my most spectacular error as a reporter. Oh, um, and this. now the uh, Jay Powell has press conferences after every meeting. So, uh, you know, there's TV footage, there's there's something to work with. So the fact that central banks in general have seen communications with the public as a more important part of their toolkit has obviously been reflected in the way the press covers them. Um, I spent some time in Germany for the Wall Street Journal in 1999 and 2000 when the European Central Bank was getting off the ground. Yeah. And uh, I remember once uh, um, in a, uh, so I went to an ECB press conference in Frankfurt. And sub after that, I had arranged to talk to Greenspan off the record for some story I was working on. And I said, Mr. Chairman, I've just come from a European Central Bank press conference. It was on the record and they serve food to the reporters. The Greenspan's answer was, in which did you find more useful? <laughs> um, so so that's that's change. And so I think the Fed gets more coverage now than it did. I'm not sure that there are very many people who specialize in covering the Fed as the best reporters do. I will say that um, now that I don't work at the Wall Street Journal anymore, that the New York Times has gotten a lot better at this than they used to be. I yeah. think they devote more energy to it. Sure. That's sort of, Steve, a different question than how we think about the Fed. I mean, uh, you know, uh, during the global financial crisis in 2007, 8, and 9, it looked like the Fed was running the world and bailing out banks and deciding which banks lived and failed and getting all very visible um, I remember once speaking, I think it was at some conference at Yale, where someone who worked for the Federal Reserve said, why is the Fed getting so much grief and the other bank regulators like the Office of Thrift Supervision and the Office of the Controller of the Currency don't get any grief? And I said, because no one ever heard of them and they know who you are. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I think that changed the public perception of the Fed and people became aware of how much power they had. And then that carried over to the COVID crisis. And so the dysfunction of Congress and with the exception of COVID, where they actually Congress did a lot, I think people began to look at the Fed as the one institution in Washington that could move quickly and solve problems that the politicians couldn't. So that's obviously changed the Fed's prominence and with it, the, the coverage of the Fed. But I think that's separate from the Fed's um, decision to become more public outward facing which did contribute to more coverage. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask, I, I'm curious to hear because about a little bit more, if you can talk a little bit about the the evolution of, of covering the Fed. Um, also, not just independently, but I'm curious if you can talk to it like collectively. The We, we talk now about the, the Fed press corps very much as, although they're individual journalists and, and we're going to get later to why that is important that there are still groups, but 
And there's a lot of talk, and I don't know if it's just Twitter or what it is, but there's a lot of talk about, you know, the press corps. Did you feel when you came in, in, in the late 80s or, or in your early days that that you were joining a, you know, a, a group of, and it's just a sense that I have that now there is like a group, yeah. you know? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think that may reflect two different things, okay. but they're related. One is, so, I mean, there really were th three or four people. There was... Uh, there was someone at the Washington Post, somebody at the, um, uh, sometimes someone at the New York Times. That was about it. The FT. That was about it. I mean, oh, like, okay. if the yeah. Fed had called a meeting to talk to the chairman, they might have had trouble getting six people to show up. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, I think a couple things changed. One is, as I said earlier. So there is now this these people you see these faces at the Fed press conference. This, if you if you're a Fed groupie, you can see the same people, and people joke about who's going to ask what question and right. stuff like that. And people rate the questions. And yeah. the one I can't quite figure out is the reporters who are in the press conference who are live tweeting answers to their own questions. I'm wondering, like, so does anybody listen there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. David Beckworth almost every meeting tweets a picture of the meeting when the camera pans to the reporters and they're all hell yeah, right. yeah, so yeah. Um, um, I did one, I did something on Twitter about, there was a shot from the back of the room uh, and I, I, I commented on someone's haircut. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's what we get. Yeah. Um, okay. so that, that's changed it, but also there's now a proliferation of, uh, websites and people like, you know, when I started political didn't exist, Axios didn't exist, uh, Punchbowl didn't exist. There was a couple of wire services, the Dow Jones News Wires and Reuters. Bloomberg was not as big a factor now. So they're just more small uh, market-driven uh, wire services. So there is now, I think there is a press corps. But I think there's kind of an inner circle. I think that um, uh, you can see it in the commentary when Nick Timoros writes something people in the markets who care about the Fed start to dissect every adverb he uses. And does he know something? And has he talked to the chair? And I don't think that, you know, a lot of other, when other, when NPR marketplace does something, I don't think they think that's the same authority. So I think there's still an inner circle. Yeah. Okay. And we're going to, we're going to get to that. Um, and, and, and kind of to, to, to jump ahead then and to get tangential to this, although we're not quite to the heart of it is I do want to talk about, this from a second, if you don't mind, pining on 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 this from the Fed's point of view, or or from the Fed's perspective, or from kind of optimal uh, policy making, uh, there was an argument in June about, and that was the meeting where the the kind of one of the first times that that Nick writes this big piece. It was you know just a couple of days before the meeting, and and, and markets start to move. And then uh, uh, at the meeting, a couple of days later, the the Fed goes for seventy five basis points instead of the fifty basis points that they had been telegraphing uh, up until the the blackout period. President George at the from the Kansas City Fed dissented on the vote, wanting a lower, wanting just the original fifty basis points. And I believe afterwards, which was kind of surprising, she's been traditionally a little bit more of a hawkish member of the committee. Uh, but kind of her her point was like, I, we had kind of committed to going the the 50 basis points. And so we should have stuck with that since that's what we told people going in. Um, and she was the only dissenting vote. Um, and so the, the Fed is kind of in an interesting position in that they 
they be, since the global financial crisis, communication has not only been important <clears throat> for credibility, transparency, accountability kind of reasons, but as a specific monetary policy tool. Um, and 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 all as all tools are they credible in and or and consistent in in the way that they use that tool? And I think that's where uh, George's dissent was coming from. And so, as somebody from the media that has been in the media but is no longer, I, I know you're still doing all sorts of commentary and stuff, but 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 not on in that kind of press corps position. Mm-hmm. You know how 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 does the Fed how should the Fed be thinking about this forward guidance credibility uh, when it's stacked up against maybe their other other jobs? Um, so one of the evolutions of central banking, I think, for which Bernanke was an early advocate even before he was at the Fed, was the notion that um, monetary policy can be more effective if people anticipate it. That is, uh, if we get six bad inflation numbers in a row, you should know that the Fed is gonna be tightening interest rates and that will get the markets to move interest rates and that will amplify the Fed's ability to do its job. So um, forward guidance is clearly now part of the central bank toolkit. And it wasn't in the Greenspan years. Greenspan was much more like, uh, he prized optionality if that's a word, um, yeah. you know, yeah. the ability to do whatever he wants and no one could ever say that you told us you could do something else. Cause I never told you what I was going to do. <laughs> um, uh, I think that we've learned and the fed has learned, they've been a lot of experimenting for guidance that sometimes it can be a problem. So there were problems when the fed set a particular threshold of unemployment for when it was going to raise interest rates. And then they hit that threshold and said, well, we don't really want to raise them. So then they, had to change that, uh, but going, but doing a time specific, we're going to keep rates low for two years. That also didn't work very well. So I think they've learned that it's really hard to give conditional forward guidance because people don't hear the conditions. Yeah. And then I think it's widely believed that um, the Fed was slow to tighten in the recent cycle because they had committed themselves not to. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a work in progress and that's uh, important. Um, I do think that I mean, I once we once had a panel at Brookings where I there was we talked about Fed communications, and I accused some of the Wall Street Fed watchers of their idea of optimal Fed communication was that they could always tell their clients with a hundred percent certainty what the Fed was going to do before the meeting. Yeah, and I said, like, I understand why you want that, but like when you think about the interests of the overall economy, is that what we really want? Yeah. I mean, surely. We want this, and and they always give themselves an, an escape clause, but no one hears it. So we want yeah, the Fed true. to be able to react uh, when the world surprises them. And it looks to me like we're in a situation where um, people have gotten used to the Fed reacting when there's really bad news. So people yeah. accept that, like, we have a COVID res- uh, pandemic we didn't anticipate, so they change course and nobody holds it against them. We're not so sure about the upside, you know. Um, so I don't think the issue of credibility is as important as not locking yourself in. And maybe they're related. Yeah. Uh, um, Christina Romer, uh, the economist at Berkeley, once when we were had a conference and we were talking about central bank credibility, she observed that the ultimate threat to central bank credibility was screwing up at its job and that the Bank of Japan got in trouble because 
it it wasn't delivering price stability. It was yeah. it was being way too hesitant at a period of deflation. And essentially, the, they had a new government, and the government fired the central banker and brought someone else in. So I think it was a good point to remember that you can get you can dance on the head of the pin about how you measure credibility and did they blow their credibility and all that. But yeah. in the end, if you deliver full employment and price stability, that's pretty much protects you about other things. Um, I think that incident you mentioned with Nick Timros was not unique, but extremely unusual. Yeah. I only know of one other instance from my time at the Wall Street Journal where the Fed actively uh, sent a message to the journal that the conventional wisdom was wrong. A uh, hundred years ago, John Barry in the Washington yeah. Post wrote something that suggested the Fed was going to do, I didn't even remember what direction. Sure. And uh, the Fed reporter at the time, Greg Yip, got a call from the Fed saying like, you know, that wasn't a very good story or something. And I remember Greg saying to me, so what should I do? And I said, so the Fed called you and told you that something that the Washington Post wrote and the markets believe is wrong. I think you should write a story saying that, <laughs> you know, like it's pretty clear to me. It's always hard with the attribution because you can't say the Fed called me up and, but, and with about the benefit of any inside knowledge, it looks to me like um, that incident you referred to sure. with the Wall Street Journal, Nick Timoros, that the markets were looking for 50. Uh, Powell wanted to do 75. And Powell seems to be very concerned about surprising the markets, which I yeah. think may be a downside of his tenure. Yep. And so he sent that signal. But I don't think that that is the norm. When Greg Ip, Ip left the Wall Street Journal for The Economist, we had a farewell party for him. It's actually at a house in my neighborhood. And I remember giving him a plastic tray covered with aluminum foil saying, this is the silver tray that CNBC says all your stories are delivered on. <laughs> I saw Greg the other day and he doesn't, he claims not to remember that, but I, I am certain of it. So I, I testify to that. And I think there's where people misunderstand how this works. If you know, if you talk to people at the Fed a lot and you have some sense of how they're thinking about the world, it's not that hard as a well-informed reporter to have a hypothesis, a good, strong sense about what they're going to do. And any reporter who has a strong sense of what the Fed is going to do or in any story, it's much easier to get that confirmed. It's not like you call up and say, so is it going to be 50 or 75? Yeah. And you learn over time how to read the signals. And so, for instance, if you have somebody who's generally been hawkish and suddenly they turn dovish, you assign a lot of weight to that and you write that accordingly. So they do have the benefit of talking to people at the Fed and some of the Fed watchers on Wall Street do not. So that's one reason they're informed. But there's a lot more thinking and work and triangulating that goes on here than the public generally thinks. I'm always amazed that how outsiders um, and even some insiders think that every story that breaks news is a leak. And yeah. they don't accept that Actually, there's a lot more active in the reporting. There was one story I did at the journal um, and it caused a problem. And one of the governors admitted to having talked to me and he kind of took the fall for a leak that he wasn't responsible for. By the time I talked to him, I already knew. He was like the third source on the story. And the other two people never came forward. Oh, um, The best thing, though, is um, there's this great transcript of a Fed meeting, which I... 
I used to have on my bulletin board where there's some discussion of a story I'd done at the journal and the art and they're doing the admonition to the FOMC not to not to be so candid with the reporters. And Greenspan is trying to say that there wasn't a leak, that I just figured this out. And he starts to dissect the attribution I used. Amazing. And it was ridiculous. And then Jerry Jordan, I think it was, the president of the Cleveland Fed said, I think you're overestimating Wessel's intelligence. <laughs> no. <laughs> my, so oh. this is in the days when the transcripts, they didn't know they were going to be released. Yes. I, oh. I treasure that one. <laughs> oh, what a gem. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. What a gem. That. So, see, this, go ahead, Stephen. Yeah, this is why was gonna, this is amazing. I was going to say, David, so I often hear uh, Fed reporters talk about talking to folks at the Fed the way you just did, which is just to say, I'm talking to folks at the Fed and this is what I'm hearing. Who Who is that typically? Is it just you're calling up the members of the FOMC? Is it you're talking to Michelle Smith or is it, you know, you're, you're bothering, uh, you know, the interns who get the coffee to see if they've heard anything? Like who who, who is typically talking to you and who are you trying to talk to? Um, one of the uh, Fed staffers I know said the Federal Reserve is the only ship that leaks from the top deck. so particularly presidents of the 12 regional fed banks seem to like to have a good high profile and they tend to talk to reporters some of them talk uh more than others and some of them seem to want to talk more on tv than in private um i don't know about the current cast of governors but in general there were always several governors who wanted, who were willing to talk. And the chair has a big voice. And if you look at Jay Powell's schedule, they don't give you the names of the reporters, but you can see when he talks to reporters. Um, Michelle Smith, who's the like the chief of staff and the head of communications, has been there forever. She was there. Um, I think she was there with Greenspan, going that back that far. She's like the permanent... Uh, it's like one of the British treasury, you know, the permanent secretary. Yeah. She has a big influence, um, especially when um, reporters think that they know something. And if they're wrong, I suspect she sometimes influences them to say like, yeah, I think you're overdoing that or something. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. Does that answer your question, Steve? There's, I don't I don't know if anybody who ever got anything from an intern at the <laughs> Fed Uh there are some people on the staff who talk to reporters, but they're pretty careful. And usually that's authorized. Um, okay. You know, like I remember once, um, uh, you're making me feel really old, but I remember there was a point during the credit crunch of the, must've been the early nineties when the fed moved the discount rate, the rate that they charge banks on the loans that the fed makes directly. And, like I was excited about this because like, this is one of the few things that I actually read in an economic textbook that was actually happening. <laughs> and they put uh, then Don Cohn, who was the director of monetary affairs on the phone to explain it. And like, I was like, holy cow, like not only do I know what they're talking about, because I remember three things from my intro economics, but I'm talking to the head of monetary affairs who never talks to reporters. Yeah. And, and it was some of that during the financial crisis when, um, they were doing all these complicated things and they needed, it was, you couldn't, the principals didn't have time to explain, okay, this is how this facility is working and stuff. Um, but those are more like explaining what they do. 
the people, if you want to get a sense of what's happening with monetary policy, it almost always comes from members of the FOMC. And, and could that go from you to them too? So if it gets to Monday of the FOMC meeting and you go, I don't really know what to say in this paragraph of my story. Can you just call up the Cleveland fed and say, look, I, I need a little help or, or how does that work? Well, you know, they, they're, they're pretty good about obeying the blackout period. And that was, that was one of the, that's the period about a week before a meeting where they're not supposed to make public comments. And that, that incident that you referred to where the journal got this heads up that we're going to do 75, they, the Fed was in an awkward position because nobody could give a speech or give an, an on the record interview. So they had to send a signal that way. Um, uh, I, it's more like um, if there's a certain cycle to this now that the Fed uh, move, makes decisions at meetings in the run up to the meetings, you try and schedule interviews with people and get a sense of what they're thinking. Um, uh, I suppose you could ask, what are they going to do? But it's usually a lot more of a dance than that. So like, you know, the last time I talked to you, you were really worried that um, the Fed was at risk of not moving fast enough to break the back of inflation. So what have you seen in the last month that has influenced your decision? That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, some people are more explicit than others, but, um, it's just, it's in that sense, it's not like any, it's just like any other reporting, you know, when you're talking to members of Congress about, uh, what's going to happen on some deal, you know, that somebody who's been really pessimistic about getting a breakthrough on say a tax bill suddenly says things are moving. I can't talk to you you take that as a signal like, okay, I got to get to work here because now we've gone from this has zero chance to better than 50-50. That's what I meant about people underestimate the amount of intellectual energy and clever detective work that goes in. And, you know, it's always um, the case that reporters sometimes bluff and some people are smart sure. enough to not fall for that and others aren't. Um, you know, as long as we're telling war stories, I remember once... Um, when uh, Lloyd Benson was the secretary of the treasury, I heard a rumor that he was leaving and I called the PR person and I said, so um, what's the deal on Benson's resignation? And she says to me, well, he sent the letter to the white house, but I don't think the president has read it yet or something like that. Oh and I gosh. thought like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, doesn't happen very often, but you know, good reporters are like Columbo, like, yeah. <laughs> and so, and I think people underestimate the role that the reporters play, but because the Fed cares about what expectations are and what markets think, when reporters get too far off base, they sometimes do get some steering. And that's where I think people are right to say that the Fed's playing an active role here. Yeah. So let's take then, let's take that just for a couple of minutes and then talk about uh, kind of the incentive structure that this sets up. Uh, it, when there is a moment, and like you said, we'll, 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 um, at the top of this part of the conversation, we'll just say that this doesn't happen very often at all. But I think of that, you know, that, that day, right? Like a Friday, like in June, like Friday, two big inflation things come out. I think there was another something over the weekend. So there's a lot of news that was coming. Um, but the Fed knew they were in a blackout period, but they wanted to get a message out. Um, so they have to decide what to do about that. And so, you know, they decide and we are, we're supposing that this happened. We don't have any for sure knowledge yeah. that this happens. Um, and then, you know, somebody gets this, a journalist gets this call, turns out to be wildly correct. 
And I mean, obviously, because that was the purpose. And then the, you know, and then that like can make a, a, a material difference on, on that journalist's career. Um, and so I'm going to, I think a, a, an even better example of this is, is, uh, and I'm not suggesting anyone's ever, you know, any journalist has ever done a store, a Fed beat journalist has ever done a story that's trying to get in the good graces. But the fact that the, the, the Fed has to, you know, they feel like they have to go through a journalist. It seems like it might create some weird incentives. And so the example I'll give real quick is like, you know, Gina got the call, it sounds like for this past meeting, or at least that's what the reporters were, were talking amongst themselves about um, that. She had, you know, a very specific uh, story. They were reading her adjectives and stuff. And, uh, um, but then just a few days later, she broke the Bullard story about kind of the scandalous uh, 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 kind of closed door meeting that he had had. And so what I think, and so there's no indication that 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 Gina got the 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 info about the this past meeting because she was being nice, uh, and there's no indication of that. But since getting that call could be good, it seems like there's a potential. And I wanted to just bounce this off you to think yeah. this is off base. All right. There's so a potential that journalists would be trying to be soft, hoping that when Michelle is telling Powell which person to call, that that she has warm fuzzies next to your name and not uh, the headache of last week's uh, drama. I don't know if any of yeah yeah what, what, all right so on. first of all i wouldn't assume that gina got a call okay. Um, okay um so i think i think you could really overdo that one incident yeah. with the journal yeah. okay um um i think that kind of i think you're onto something but not quite yeah so um the wall street journal and the new york times have a certain uh credibility and visibility that is going to an authority and if you invest in covering something, you're seen as more authoritative. And as a result, you're more likely to be the person who they choose to send a signal to on those occasions that they do. Um, but I would put what you said slightly differently. Sure. Um, there really are two very different roles of reporters in covering the Fed. One role is to be able to tell our readers, what is the Fed thinking? How are they gonna to react to this? Uh, what are they, are they, what is their, if the trade goes, what is their reaction function? Who, uh, who is, um, who is, whose message should you listen to? It's all trying to um, explain to people what the Fed is thinking and doing, because that has consequences. Yeah. The other thing is that we have a responsibility as the press, or I can use the we, even though I'm not there anymore, <laughs> yeah. to hold the institution accountable. Yeah. And that sometimes can be a difficult um, gap to, to, to manage. Um, you know, there are reporters who cover the White House who basically say, I'm never going to get any leaks, so I'm just going to go into, I'm going to be the asshole who's always yeah. picking on them. And that's a sustainable strategy. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to be someone who can, can speak knowledgeably about what the Fed's going to do, you can't set yourself up as being the opposition. Yeah. Um, but I also think that, so there are some incentive issues. I agree with that. Um, but I also think that it means that people need to be really careful when they do the accountability stuff, that they're not um, getting played or yeah. they're saying things that are not fair. So um, my gut is that the story that Gina did about the St. Louis Fed president talking to a bunch of Citibank clients without any and privately sure has 
hurt Jim Bullard a lot more than it's hurt Gina Smilik. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, on contrast, there was a particularly bad story. Um, you know, there was some stuff that was really bad about members of the FOMC trading stock. Sure. Um, and then uh, my friends at the Wall Street Journal got a little carried away and they looked at all the uh, financial reporting of the senior staff. Mm-hmm. And they pilloried a guy who on the staff who had sold a lot of stock. Mm-hmm. And they knew some, they didn't know a lot. Mm-hmm. But basically what had happened is this guy's father-in-law was rich, committed suicide. Mm-hmm. He and his wife inherited all the stock. Mm-hmm. He went to the ethics people and said, what do I do? And they said, you need to sell it. Mm-hmm. So he sold it. Mm-hmm. And they made this look like it was insider trading. And yeah. so I suspect that that reporter is not going to get a lot of favors from mm-hmm. the Fed. Ah, oh, sure. Yeah. So I think there is an incentive problem. Like if you want to be an insider, this is a true in Washington in general. Yeah. Do you want to be an insider or do you want to hold them accountable? And the best reporters are good at being insiders, but they let their sources know, like, you screw up, I'm going to screw you. Yeah. And, and, and that, but that's hard to do. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. That's, and that's really helpful. That's that really frames it differently than I had in my head, which is, which is helpful. And here again, it's, it's, we kind of have two things here. We have the kind of in general, which is those two things that you're trying to balance, like you just said, and then these specific moments and that, and that kind of credibility is, is important. That's fascinating. Okay, well, let's just close it up in just the last minute. Uh, you had mentioned at the beginning um, uh, the fact that like the Fed not announcing its moves led to the biggest reporting mistake of your career. <laughs> and I, and I, I don't, right. I don't I want to close because we didn't, I don't think yeah, we yeah. got that story. Okay, so, let's close with that. So um, when I started covering the Fed, the Fed didn't announce its decisions and it didn't always make its moves on the day of the meeting. They would basically authorize the oh, chair to make a move. Sure. And they would send a signal by... Um, the way they came into the markets. Okay. Like how much or what time. Uh So we had this game where they would do something and then we would um, call around and try and get confirmed that they'd actually do, they'd actually done something. You're calling like, you're calling brokers and. No, calling people in the government. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, So uh, at the time, there were people in the administration who would get informed when the Fed had done something. Ah, And so ah. I called one of those people and I said, it looks to me like the Fed has eased or whatever. Uh And he said, it looks to me the same way or something like that. (laughs) And I took that as confirmation. What I didn't know is that Greenspan had figured out that this guy was talking to us and it cut him off. And he had, he had nobody in Washington never wants to admit that they're out of the loop. So he didn't lie to me. He said, it looks to me. But what he said is like the last time you asked me that I knew and this time I did. So I wrote, it runs on the Friday after Thanksgiving. I write that they did something. And on Monday morning, the Fed comes in the markets with like the equivalent of howitzers to make clear that I was wrong. Uh, this did not go over well with my boss, Al Hunt. Um, I wrote Greenspan a letter. And I said, you have a hard enough job. I made it harder. I apologize. Wow. So three or four days later, my phone rings and the secretary says, will you hold for the chairman? I'm thinking like, oh shit, this doesn't happen very often. <laughs> yeah. And he Greenspan comes on the phone and says, 
This is the first time since the Fed was formed in 1913 that any reporter has ever apologized. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. And oh it was true. It was that kind of stuff that led yeah. the Fed, contributed to the Fed being more open and explicit. It yeah. was pretty clear that they were, and they were, people in Congress would say like, what's the deal here? You're a public agency. You do something on monetary policy. You don't tell anybody. The Wall Street <laughs> Journal figures it out. And then six weeks later, we read the minutes to find out whether they were right or wrong. What, yeah. What's the story on that? And yeah. so that pressure to kind of like, we can't really control the leaks, led yep. them to be more open about what they had done. And yeah. it also, it was a certain democratization of the FOMC when if the chairman had got to make all the calls as Greenspan and Volcker did, um, they felt like they were kind of, why am I here? Yeah. And as the Fed became more democratic in the lower the lowercase d sense, making decisions at meetings then led naturally to making announcements and stuff. But the fact that they couldn't control us led them to want to control the message more. Yeah. And that was wise on their part. Took a lot of the fun out of covering the Fed, I tell you that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because yeah. in those days, no one else tried to do what we did. We had like a lock on this business. We would confirm or not that they had tightened. And since they would do it at random times, it wasn't so obvious as everybody calling around on the day of the meeting. Yeah, it was a constant job. This has been amazing. Um, well, I, let's, let's, we, yeah, we have to close it out there because of time, but uh, they, we could, we could keep this conversation going for hours, I think. And so no, we'll, have to, we'll, we'll look for an excuse to, to bring you back on. Um, uh, listeners, uh, David's Brookings page, his Fed book, which is in Fed We Trust, uh, and his new book, Only the Rich Can Play, uh, links are all in, uh, in the show notes. Uh, both David and uh, Stephen, thank you guys for coming on. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, guys.